Welcome to The Travelling Senorita, episode number 38. I am I'm leaving the northern New South Wales region today, literally, and heading over to Philadelphia, oh, not literally, digitally, I should say, Philadelphia, to catch up with a very dear old friend of mine who is a sculptor from Scotland, from Glasgow, to be more precise, and he is a very renowned sculptor around the world. He's been to Australia quite a few times to do some public art installations um, and he's just a damn fine bloke with a fantastic Scottish accent. Hello Andy Scott. Hi Kayleigh, it's great to chat with you. How are you doing? <laughs> you haven't, I, I see you haven't uh, got that Philadelphia accent yet. Can you try it for me? I, I can't even try. No <laughs> chance. <laughs> so, it's, it's very particular and uh, no, I, it's hard enough being understood with my Scottish one. I don't want to mess it up. <laughs> don't ever lose it my friend. So just paint the picture where you are right now. Tell me where you are. Well, today I'm, I'm, we're speaking, we're at home because of this COVID uh, close down, you know, the city of Philadelphia basically locked down, so I have a big studio up in North Philly, uh, about 6,000 square feet where I usually work, but because of this close down, I'm working from home, I have a little studio up in the attic here, we live in a very nice part of town called Society Hill, which is the most historic and oldest part of Philadelphia. Uh, all the houses date from about the 18th century, and it's all cobbled streets and little old uh, terraced houses. And we're lucky enough to be living in one of those little places. So I'm in uh, an old part of town. It's a little uh, touristy, uh, idyllic little space. And um, I'm here with my wife, Hanukkah, and the dog. And that's where I've been working for the last few weeks. That must, Usually, be, uh, that must be really, like, challenging, Andy, because you build... I mean, what's the biggest sculpture you've built off the top of your uh, head? Well, two, two horses' heads at 100 feet high, 30 metres high. So they, they were fairly epic. Back in Scotland, and most of my pieces are usually between three to six meters is the kind of average yes, height. Yes, you don't work um, small at all, and here you are having to adapt into your studio yeah. in the attic. How does that work for you? Well, it's been challenging, but I've got a couple of little maquettes, uh, little small studies I've been doing for other projects, and a portrait head I've been doing for another project. And working on sketches and keeping myself busy. Um, having said all that, though, at the start of this week, I did go into the studio. They're beginning to relax the regulations here. So I did go into the main studio and picked up the welding helmet and all my gear again. And uh, it looks like we're turning a corner here as far as the COVID thing goes. So uh, hopefully next week, back to full speed ahead. Yeah, that's interesting. Let's just touch on that for a minute because we will go back to when you're a wee, a wee Scottish boy and then where you ended up, how you ended up in Philadelphia as well. So what's it like being over there as a, as a foreigner living in America? How does it feel for you in, through this pandemic? Uh, it is very strange. Uh, it's exposed a lot of the worst aspects of America, to be honest with you. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I'm not going to criticise it too much because we've America's been very good to us. We've worked hard and we've, we've established ourselves very well here. We've met some great people. But this COVID situation has really exposed the, the sort of downside of America in terms of health care, social care, and, uh, and how they look after people in unfortunate situations. Mm. It's been a real eye-opener, I'll be honest. Um, and it's difficult to concentrate on the, on the better points. But, you know, it's not as bad as the media makes out. There's a lot of great people here. Uh, great healthcare professionals, everybody's doing their best. Uh, so you just got to concentrate on the brighter spots and then we'll fight our way through this. But it's uh, it's been a bit of a roller coaster, that's for sure. Is it a bit like, um, I mean, you spend a lot of time living and working in London. Is it a bit class and caste over there as well in the sense of division? Bit, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a little bit, uh, you know, over the past four years, uh, America has become more of a divided society, I think it's fair to say, mm. uh, since somebody was elected. Mm. I, don't, I don't, we won't talk politics, no, but it's. No. 
it certainly changed the dynamics of America from when we uh, got the green cards, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, it has certainly exposed the gulf between uh, the wealthier parts and the poorer parts of American society. Mm. Um, it's been an interesting situation to see. And as I say, I'm going to concentrate on the positives. Lots of good people here doing lots of good things. So so we, we concentrate and focus on that. You always do, my friend. So, you know, I must say, we you always said to me when you came over to Australia and I was always trying to escape to Scotland or Italy or somewhere exotic on because, we you know, we've got this island that floats over here and you've always had this massive appreciation for this lucky country that... No, I live in it and yeah. I can call home and I must say like I've just really learnt to be grounded through this and yeah. just real particularly where we live in northern New South Wales if I just I said the other day Andy and this is my podcast so I can say whatever I want remember the ABC days so funny you and yeah. I on ABC um so I said the other day if you, if you just if, if you whinge where we live or you know you're cranky you're just an asshole <laughs> yeah. because I'll tell you what you've got nothing you got nothing All to about. Yeah, well, I've been. I was so lucky in my younger days uh, to spend so much time there. I must have been in Australia 36, 40 times yes, or something like that over yeah, the years. Yeah. And uh, you really don't know how lucky you've got it. It's a fantastic country, and I miss it every day. I still miss it. And uh, you know, one of these days, hopefully, I'll get back in a business capacity. And you, you never know what the future holds. But really, this experience of the whole COVID thing really has highlighted how lucky you are. So yeah, all, your, all your listeners there in Australia, yeah. you're, you're lucky, lucky people. I feel like that's what we're gaining from this is just to be really gracious because sometimes we're yeah. a little bit, um, yeah, we're, we're a bit privileged in that sense that we don't understand how lucky we are until something like this happens. But before yeah. we go into how you and I met, because I just got a flashback then of how we actually met, um, let's talk about you as a, as a, wee, as a wee lad. Where did you, where did you yeah. grow up, Andy? I grew up in Glasgow in Scotland, which Glasgow is the biggest city in Scotland. Edinburgh is the, the city that gets all the glamour and all the uh, all the publicity, but Glasgow is the, the heart as far as I'm concerned. It's a much bigger city than Edinburgh, but it's very much a working city. It was a city of ship shipyards and heavy industries and heavy engineering. And I grew up there and on the south side of the city and then moved to the West End when I was a student. Um, and very much a product of, of the city, you know, it's uh, got a very distinctive character, great people fantastic, absolutely beautiful Victorian architecture and uh, um, much more down to earth perhaps than Edinburgh is beautiful, no, no getting away from that but uh, I grew up in Glasgow and I guess those um, the, the influence of that Victorian and Edwardian architecture really influenced me when I was just a little kid. My father used to always tell me to look up at the buildings and I remember going through the city and, and looking at these beautiful stone carvings and ironwork and all, all the big old buildings there and I think that went into my little head and and then uh, I got to go to art school as a kid for, for Saturday courses. Just, just on Dad then, what was making Dad say that to you? What was his background? Well, my, dad, my dad was always interested in art. He was a draftsman in a building company, so he right. was always interested. And, and uh, he, he was a fairly cultured fellow in his own way, and, and he really did his best to kind of heighten my awareness of the built environment and, uh, and our place in it. And, uh, yeah, and that set me on the path. Yeah, right. And then you mentioned that you, um, so he's a draftsman. Did you ever think of being a draftsman? I applied for architecture at Glasgow School of Art as well as what I did, sculpture. And I was accepted for architecture, but luckily I, luckily for them and the world of architecture, I failed mathematics and physics. So, so uh, sculpture became my... Uh, Do you know what's interesting or, about that, though? Because you, you've married an architect, which is which is fantastic. Yeah, um, indeed, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and also you, like... You don't need that piece of paper, in my opinion, because you absolutely understand placemaking. Like, you understand yeah. the way that urban design works. 
but I think you needed your arts side, like your artistic side, because you're a drawer as well. You can draw. Yeah. You can... So let's talk about what made you choose to go to the College, was it College of Arts in Glasgow? It, it was called Glasgow School of Art is the, the official title, yeah. And um, it, back in those days, well, unfortunately the building has suffered a I can't believe that, Andy. I, I, that... Bumped down, yeah. Heartbreaking, heartbreaking. Oh, it was wow. We were losing a dear friend. It was awful what's happened in the last few years. Oh, I, I can't bless. tell you the group of people of my generation and, and older, everybody in the city of Glasgow felt. Um, but, you know, <clears throat> it made sense back in those days to go straight from high school, applied to art school, got in, and I was lucky enough to study there for five years. I did my degree in four years, and then they offered me a postgraduate study. So I stayed on for another year. I sold out my degree show exhibitions and then figured I might be able to make a living out of it. And then... Over the course of the next few years, a few twists and turns along the way, and I found myself eventually doing, becoming a professional sculptor. And in 1997, I got my first big outdoor uh, sculpture project, and it was really off and running after that. So that was a, a swift run through my, my early days. <laughs> no, it is, but it's interesting because you often described yourself as just a, a wee welder. Like you go, I'm just a welder. I just weld big, big stuff, and like you, mm. like so. There is this really hands-on. It's really yeah. gritty. Like what you do is 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 not for the yeah. faint-hearted. So, what what part of you was like? Okay, I'm an artist and I know how to design and draw, but I'm also like a, like almost like a tradie. How do you marry those two together? I think it was uh, when I first went in to do sculpture in my second year at Glasgow School of Art. It was something about the physicality of working with the materials that really drew me to it. And um, there's also that that thing about three-dimensional work where it really inhabits the space. You talk about people in place, you know, and um, where you're making an artwork that people have to deal with. It's in their space. They can't hang out on a wall and ignore it. They've got mm. to live with it, mm. whether it's uh, personal private commissions or whether it's big public works. Mm. And there was something about that physicality that really appealed to me. Mm. And a lot of it was to do with processes. And, you know, without over-romanticising things, I think maybe my history of growing up in a big industrial city with the shipyards only a, a few miles away. and. Yeah. You know, that, that heritage of Glasgow really trickled into my brain when I was younger and, and somehow influenced me. So that's how I came along to do what I'm doing, you know? Yeah, because when, when I visited you over there, Andy, because um, I would have had that romantic thought of Edinburgh and I had actually um, visited Edinburgh a couple of times and lived in London yeah. in my early 20s. But by the time I got to come over and um, hang out with you, that was kind of like mid-30s and you, you said, no, I want to show you... Glasgow, and I remember we had yeah. the most cracker time. I, I visited you there twice, actually. We had the yeah. the best time, and you were you are so your fondness of your city is next level, right? And and even though it has that industrial, that hardworking, and as you said, it doesn't have the big castle when you when you drive into town, but it has, yeah, yeah. what it does have is an Andy Scott sculpture when you drive into town. Yeah, Where yeah, is that sculpture? <laughs> yeah, you showed us all of them, but there's one particularly on the side of the road that's almost like a landmark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me yeah. about that one. Well, that was the one that really got the ball rolling for me. That was, again, <clears throat> I think, yeah, 97. And I was, up until then, I'd been working a lot and uh, doing sort of interior design projects and working, you know, all sorts of stuff as a young artist, trying to make a living, turning my hand to almost anything to, to stay uh, off the ball and, and make a buck, you know. Mm. And then in 97, uh, somebody had noticed the, the work I was doing and asked me if I wanted to apply for this sculpture competition. Mm. And I came up with the idea for this big horse, which you've seen. And luckily for me, I won the project and we built it. And then really after that, it was pretty phenomenal, you know, the 
the offers of other projects started to come in. And interestingly, they came from some of the worst parts of the city and, and further across. When I say worst, I mean um, what you might call areas of uh, urban uh, disenfranchised, disenfranchised areas, disenfranchised areas, sorry. Um, yeah. Deprived areas that had struggled a little bit. Yeah. And they realised that having a local artwork might do something to lift people's spirits and give them a sense of belonging and a sense of pride of place. So after that big horse culture, a whole number of those projects came. The budgets weren't huge and often they weren't particularly big sculptures, but I learned a lot about working with people. I learned that people in some areas needn't be, you know, they needn't feel out of things or shouldn't be looked down on just because of the way they live. They were very proud of their areas and that trickled through into the sculptures that I made for them. And, <clears> and then, <throat> you know, there was no plan to it. One job fell into the next and over the course of the years, the scale up and grew and expanded and, and here we are now. So yeah, it was... Uh, that sculpture beside the motorway there, the heavy horses it was called, yeah. is still standing there and it's still looking good and everybody loves it and it's been a big success. So that brings me to my next point, which is I think, I'm trying to work out when I met you, my friends. So I left Sydney in 2001 and I went down to a fabulous, um, I was always um, in awe of an exhibition down there called Sculpture by the Sea from Bondi yeah, to yeah. Bronte. And having two wee ones, I would sit up the hill and watch this. And I've got, you know, I've dabbled in events and PR pretty much all my life. So I kind of went, wow, this is a really simple concept. And I met the owner there and he said, look, it's, you know, it's, it's inspired by the one in Prague. So I was kind of having a look at how outdoor art um, literally, which is what you do on a permanent basis, but on a temporary basis is literally placed into, you know, places like the beach where all the general yeah. public can come around and, and, and interact with it. So yeah. I um, moved up north in 2001 and I kept thinking of this wonderful exhibition and I thought, you know, back then the Gold Coast was pretty barren as far as, you know, my journo mates were all saying, oh my God, you're moving to the cultural desert, you know, white shoe shuffle, they were hanging shit on me basically. Um, and, you know, and it wasn't as bad as that. I mean, it's bloody hard to find a latte, but that's just my snobby Melbourne side coming out. But it was um, definitely not, they were definitely sports oriented events, not cultural ones. So we found a little bit of a niche in the market. And before I knew it, I literally walked before we could crawl and off came the Swell Sculpture Festival. But yeah. the first year we did it and we got it across the line. It, I'm sure you joined us in the second year. I'm almost Second year, the second, second one you done. Yeah, I love you, that you remember facts. So we went down to Sculpture by the Sea to have a little look around and see who was there internationally that might want to come up to Swell Sculpture Festival in Corumban. And lo and behold, there you were by your piece, which was a horse. Was it a horse? It was a horse, yeah. yeah, yeah and you yeah. were standing there and we had the biggest crack. Like we just got along like a house on fire. I think yeah, we, had I been, that, we went yeah. out and had drinks that night. We were, like, we were having the best. I'm like, bloody, love a, love a wee Scotsman. You know, they're always up. They're very rustic, you know. And you, you, you hey, see. listen, do you think so? <laughs> I was standing there in Mark's Park at Bondi. Yes. Two gorgeous, two gorgeous girls approached me and asked me about Ask me if I want to go to Queensland, I'm like, yeah, all right, that'll do for me, sure. <laughs> you are so hilarious. You had a blonde version and a, and a brunette version. Unfortunately, yeah. we were all married with kids, but that you didn't give a shit because you ended up getting right, along. You're one of my husband's dearest friends, which is fantastic. Anyway, right, exactly. yeah, because he's got bloody Scottish blood, you know, you know, you can see that one a mile away. So what we ended up then doing was, was we were talking about, it was a bit of a pie in the sky at the time, and then you went back to, did you go back to Scotland or you were living in Australia then? <laughs> Yeah, no, at that point I was uh, backwards and forwards quite a lot. I had, 
Yeah, I'd already established a bit of a, a, a love a love for Australia, and I'd been quite a few times, but that for that sculpture by the Sea Show, I'd actually built a piece out in Boona, as you might remember, my friend Every, Fiona. Everybody listening will know that piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so we, uh, so I'd already uh, started working in Australia, and after this show at Sculpture by the Sea, I went back, and then I was backwards and forwards from then on every few months, and it went over the course of so many years, backwards and forwards, 30, 40 times. So, and at one point, as you remember, I did have a studio in Corumban there, and, and you know, I was all set to move, but then, you know, life throws the dice in another way, and here we are now, so. Well, it's really interesting, is it? Because one thing, you are, um, I mean, you're an artist, but you are a professional man as well. Like, you've got yeah. this really nice mix. It's a bit like you being that welder with the artist. You're also a business, a, a really good businessman who has a successful business. And you're, you know, you're a sculptor. But what you do there is, um, and I love, I learned a lot from you in this regard because I just started our own public art agency, which is what you described about your first piece in Glasgow, how that the council and the government had to get behind it and then invest. Now you taught yeah. me how to liaise with the Gold Coast City Council, really, because when we were selling yeah. the pieces, like you were damn serious about it. You weren't going to put all that time into a piece and then not sell it, right? So you you would come out to Australia knowing that the piece in Sculpture by the Sea was going to be sold. You know, you would have done your groundwork. And I think yeah. not every artist has that that beautiful marriage of, of, of left and right brain. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's not for everybody. So, um, um, you know, there's been times in my career, Kylie, where I've been quite envious of people who've chosen to stick to their own <clears throat> artistic vision and, and do that over the commercial necessity. Um, I've never been quite so lucky for me. I've always had to marry it with a certain business sensibility and the pragmatic realities of paying for the overheads in the studio and and the, all the stuff that goes with it. Um, it's a choice I made. Sometimes you suck tea with the devil and you, and you have to pay the price and sometimes that works out for you really well. Other times you have to make some compromises for clients in the, in the practical world that you've chosen to live in. So I remember those conversations we used to have back in, back in the day and it was... You know, neither for, for for yourselves as well or for me, it was it was never easy. You know, it's it's not for everybody. It's a it's a tough old game at times. But, I wouldn't actually you know, describe it as um. I wouldn't actually describe it as sucking tea with the devil. I tell you why, because and I'd interviewed you a, a, a lot as did our dear friend Bryony Petch on ABC. I believe your creativity is always at the forefront. So when we would go into council meetings, for example, and we were dealing with people that were um, engineers and. You know, yeah. not not used to big scale European style public art, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And, and I mean, credit where credit's due. The Gold Coast literally embraced buying public art for a while there, and you were at the you were at the head of that along with me. You know, we were selling it together. But yeah. your concept for them. So I'll give you an example. Up at um, the Indie, when the Indie was huge in Surface Paradise, right? They had a bit of a problem. Yeah. Yep. So they had a problem there where they had to have a temporary garden that they could remove so that the track could go in, right? So they contacted me and they had a chat and I thought, well, there's only one man that for this job and that was you. That we actually put a few forward, but I knew that you would you would have a solution, a creative solution. So what you did then was come up with this, um, the Peacocks one, have you? Tell us a little bit about that project because you did not sell, what was it? Have tea with the devil there at all. Uh, well. <laughs> Maybe you think you did. Yeah. Well, it was a type of work that I'd done previously, but I think for that one, uh, I, I do remember, I remember it very well, because the Peacocks were, was it called Macintosh Island? That's right. Was that the yeah, yeah. yeah, I remember. Yeah. And they actually, they had Peacocks there. That's right. And uh, I was working on two or three different sculpture projects in my, in my Carumban studio, I remember. 
And uh, yeah, the, the job opportunity came along and, and I was trying to get a foothold and a commercial viability in, in the studio. And and I remember it was Matt Reynolds was the chap, wasn't oh it? Oh my Matt God, Reynolds listen, look at you yeah. go, buddy. <laughs> yeah, he was a lovely fellow as well. Yeah, and, uh, that's right. I think a lot of time on projects like that, uh, you develop such a kinship with, like, obviously with yourselves as well, and also with Matt, who was such a was such a lovely fellow that you kind of get um, uh, not seduced, but can, you kind of grow into the project. It grows on you as, as you, the more you discuss it. So I came up with some designs which I guess you would say were fairly uh, super stylish. I guess a bit Art Nouveau actually. Uh, Quite Art Deco. On... Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 They were based on peacock feathers and foliage and, and the natural habitat there and we had to involve, we had to design a little system that could have them taken out and put back in again and it was a good job, yeah, in the end I enjoyed it. You remember my buddy George I used to work with? Amazing. He came over with me and yeah, we had a, we had a good God, we had, we had a bloody crack back then, didn't we? Yeah, it was a good laugh, yeah. You don't realise how, I mean you did, but you just don't realise how much fun it is until you look back now. Yeah, the halcyon days. We didn't even know at the time. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's, a, um, here's another example uh, of a piece that you did that my listeners will know because we get a lot of listeners from down in Byron Bay in northern New South Wales. Um, yeah. Tell me about the piece that you got craned on the top of the lighthouse. Yeah, headland. You loved that. Yeah. A show called Parkscape, which was run by uh, Rebecca Townsend, and Rebecca's still down in Byron doing very well. She has a public art consultancy now called Creative Road, and uh, I'm I'm still in touch with Rebecca every now and then. Yeah, Um, right. Back then, back then, she, Rebecca, had uh, originally worked at Sculpture by the Sea with David Hanley, and then had moved up to Byron and decided to set up her own little version there at, at Byron and she asked me if I wanted to be involved and I designed and made uh, a sculpture, I actually made it in the Corumbin studio as you'll remember a big tall figure, a male figure uh, who stood and he actually, we put him on the very tip of the Cape Byron on the cliff there as yeah, I'm sure some of your listeners will be familiar with it, you actually walk down from the lighthouse and then there's that promontory that looks over the Pacific Yeah. Uh, and I came up with the design and Rebecca loved it and, and the rest of her colleagues and everybody was all systems go. And I remember jokingly saying to her, the only way we're going to be able to get it there was by helicopter. And, and, oh and I, meant it kind of, I meant it kind of as a joke. And she said, I'll leave that with me. Next thing you know, she contacted a helicopter company and they were like, yeah, yeah, sure, no problem. And, and before you knew it, we had a helicopter flying out over the Pacific. They picked it up at an airstrip quite close down in Byron. They flew out over the Pacific with it. Another helicopter was filming it all. Uh, Kylie, listen, I've got to tell you that I remember standing there, it was about 6 a.m. or half mm. six in the morning. Mm. Ian George looking out. I think maybe Greg was there with us. Yeah, no, but, but yeah, I'm pretty sure Greg was there, yeah. I'm sure Greg was there for the install. Yeah. And, he was uh, taking and, photos. He was always your photographer, remember, yeah, man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I remember watching this helicopter bringing this sculpture in over the Pacific Ocean, and I'm standing there with my buddy George and, and just thinking, holy moly, and the sun was coming up, <laughs> and this sculpture was swinging in, and it was just one of these surreal moments. It was unbelievable. It made, like, it made, it went viral. I mean, this is before, yeah. this is bloody before Instagram, mate, but you were all over the news. Can you imagine that? It was before social media, but I'm pleased to say the local news network ran with it, and uh, Rebecca was delighted. It did a great job to publicise the Artscape show, and it stood there for, I think, two months, and then when the show finished, the local, the good people of Byron uh, were really most of them were really quite keen to keep it at the sculpture uh, at the headland there 
but sadly the, the national parks and I, and I respect their decision it, it was national park land and they said I had to go but luckily by then Rebecca had managed to do uh, her, her pitch and, and it was bought by a private collector down down in the peninsula, Mornington Peninsula, which you know, and it went off down there, and it's in a private collection to this day down there. So is it, it, was a, a, is it at a wine? Is it down at a winery down there? No, no, it's not. It's a private chap who was, I think, he was in the construction industry. Wow. And he just had a real passion for contemporary sculpture, and it's a beautiful collection. And he he bought it. We shipped it down there, and uh, I went down to see it a few months later on one of my other trips. But I tell you what, when they came to take it away and we did the reverse thing with the helicopter, we shackled it onto the helicopter and lifted it up and took it out over the ocean again. People from Byron were there on the headland and some of them were in tears. It was a really emotional, it was the most amazing thing. And you know, to go back to what your topic is about people in place, uh, that, that experience of having that there at that most beautiful, picturesque place. One of the lovely things that struck me about the location was the, the natural environment and how young kids used to react to the sculpture. And I had my, all my kind of adult serious uh, connotations and, and narrative about navigation and about uh, the, the ocean going vessel, the, the sailing ships going up and down the, the ocean there. And yet all the little kids used to think that it was uh, there to attract the whales and the dolphins. Wow. And I remember standing at the headland and little kids would ring the bell. The figure was holding a ship's bell. Yes. And ring the bell. Oh, wow. And then dolphins coming out of the ocean, you know, and it was just oh, beautiful. Oh, that's making me sad. I think it was meant to stay there. That's like mythology, isn't it? It's really amazing. It's all about making, I like to think of my work sometimes as making a modern mythology or a, a modern narrative for a location. And that piece really did that in a, in a spectacular way, in ways that I couldn't have envisaged. So I didn't have the free imagination that little kids do, you know. It was a lovely, lovely experience. So you would have, it's, this is really interesting we're talking about this because Byron people are, are really passionate. I told you, I'm pretty sure I told you about the one that was put in the roundabout and taken out. Like the piece. I heard about it, yeah. yeah. And, and, and you I, mentioned it and I heard yeah. about it from other people. And and it was a very unfortunate situation. Was Rebecca sure. involved in that one? No, not, not to my knowledge. Well, no. see, that one just went pear-shaped big time because... It, it did, yeah. And the digital, you know, social media, hello. But it was, um, you know, I actually really felt for the artist and it'd be like you, Andy. Right. I mean, yeah, poor guy. So he's from Melbourne and, of course, that put him on the bloody back foot straight away um, in small town. And second to that, um, they just were calling it like, you know, Byron's got a new member saying it looked like a, you know, a member, basically. Yeah. Yeah. A gentleman yeah. member. Um, and, you know, from that moment, but apparently he was... Um, I don't, I don't advocate this at all. Um, I do advocate the design process and, and um, engaging the community, and I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. There's something went seriously wrong there in that process that you and I used to work on. But this poor guy, it's not his fault. He's come up there and people were abusing him at the roundabout. Like, you know. I wrote, I wrote about it. Yeah, it's terrible. I I it's really terrible. And I felt terrible for the fellow. And I, I, I don't know enough about the backstory. I do know that he had a, a very, very modest budget to work with. And, oh, it's ridiculous. You know, he would have done it for the love of it, mate. And then he got abused. Yeah. The folks have to realise with these kind of things, yeah. you know, they're not cheap. They're not cheap to build. They're not, not cheap to make. And, and, transport and to, to as well. Build. Yeah, transport on top of it. Yeah. Absolutely, and, and if, if council or whoever's paying for it don't appreciate what they're getting into, you know, it's, it's going to backfire, and, and I think that's yeah, what happened to right. the artwork, you know. It's, it's, listen, Kylie, I remember you and I um, talking to Gold Coast Council as many years ago now, and, and you know, it made the local papers, and they were savage in their criticism. <laughs> you know, it, it really was brutal, you know. And, I remember. And they, showed that, you know, they showed a philistinism based on perceived value of artworks, 
And I used to think about that, you know, and this happened at other times in my career, and then when the sculpture does get installed, and tourists come to see it, they all spend money in the area, and it raises the profile, and it's on postcards and t-shirts and all the rest of it. Where are those critics that were complaining about it two years before? You and, know? That, and that's so right. And we, we were lucky enough, I guess, to have an engineering urban design department in council. I remember his name is Colin, someone as well. Colin... Yeah. I don't recall now. I do remember there were some very good Cole, people. Cole Brown, I think his name was. I've just yeah, come. Right? Yeah. yeah, no, yeah. but so what I think happened, just to go back to Byron there, because that's actually been dismantled now, right? Let's get this yeah. right. So it's, yeah. it was such, you know, uproar that it's been dismantled. This is the ironic part about it. Um, and people that probably were the ones that were complaining, they've all bought a bird. They bought a bird each yeah. to put in their houses. I just, I can't yeah. get my head around all of that from an artist's perspective. I just can't. Um, well, but, you know, like at the end of the day, this artist will be like, you know, blow you, Byron, I'm not coming back, which is sad because I just think, you know, his budget, I know I know what it was. It was ridiculous and it honestly would hardly have covered the transport or installation costs. So yeah. obviously that piece came out looking fabricated. Another example of a good example, um, the antithesis to that is when uh, the council came to swell and we had that beautiful horse, Arabesque. How's my, arabesque, how's my yeah. brain today? Jesus. Arabesque up on the um, on the sand dunes. Everybody remembers it because we again we were quite brazen. I think we got a crane in and we put it up on the sand dune. Yeah, now, did, I remember it. Yeah. Yeah. With ship. That was the year that I really went. Um, I think my Aspie side was like, I am not letting this go. Right. So I put the crayfish on the on the rock and I put your horse. Yeah. And people, I did have a lot of people within my own internal team giving me a hard time. You know, I did. Um, you yeah. never backed down once. Um, because you know, like you know, the global globalization of that you can you know yeah, what, yeah. and you've done yeah, it before yeah. but people are shifting tides i had the council on my back i had my partner on my back i had everyone on my back and i was like no i am not letting these artworks not go climb the rock which was a massive big copper crayfish and this horse has to be front and center first piece up on a sand dune i've looked at the tides andy you were working very closely with me on all this we weren't stupid yeah. we knew what was going on man how were the photos of that so we had the, the sunsets and the shots yeah. of that, they've ended up on the front of coffee table books. Yeah. Is that not one of your I most... I being in Brisbane Airport, flying back to the, to the UK, and I was in Brisbane Airport, and I went in to buy some touristy knickknacks to take home to family, you know, as you do, and I picked up this little book, a little tourist book, Gold Coast Photographs. I opened it up, and in the centre pages, there was my sculpture. I um, couldn't believe it. And that, you know what? And Greg's just an amateur. I'm going to tell you something about Age of Amateur, because I learnt this the other day. Greg's an amateur um, photographer, but he took, a ki he took a killer shot of that that went everywhere. Oh, really? Yes. I don't, I don't know if I've seen that one. I've seen plenty, but make sure he says no, it. No, that's the one. That's the one that was used everywhere. Paul Ewart yeah, took one. That. Yeah, but he, Greg also took one. You've got it, but we'll, we'll dish it up again. So the, the, the thing about that is the council came along, um, the urban planners, and they got it, right? So they ended up, yeah. they ended up um, buying it for Broadbeach. And okay, it's now yeah, yeah. front and centre. It's opposite Star and Jupiter. Uh, yeah, yeah. I passed Star it the City. last time it was over. I passed Conventions. it. It's still there. looking fantastic, yeah. Everybody knows it when they say it. They yeah. go, you know, and it's a bit like our old friend Richard Moffat with the Pelicans at Corumban. That's another yeah, example. Yeah, Richard. Yeah, yeah. Same yeah, year. Yeah, same year, right? So we sold all these placemakers, really, in, in that yeah. year. And, and as you said, they've, they've stood the test of time. They invested in them. Uh, they yeah. paid the price. And now they've got them forever. So that's a great example. Yeah. The, um... Well, look, I've had some interesting experiences, kind of where, where a piece gets a lot of uh, press and quite some, you know, maybe some adverse publicity beforehand. 
Then it's installed, and then maybe say a year or so later, I've been in the position to be doing either talks or lectures or presentations, and I've said to folks, you know, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the money back and I'll take the sculpture away and I'll put it somewhere else. Oh, no, 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 that's our sculpture, you can't do that. Now, it's theoretical because I couldn't really give them the money back. But the point is, by then, they've developed a sense of ownership. Yeah, that's right. A sense right. of belonging. Yeah. It's their sculpture. And, and I'm a firm believer, you know, the right type of art in the right type of place works. It's just fantastic when it works. And, and uh, I'm pleased to say I've been involved in a couple that have really uh, been taken to heart by by many, many people. Let's talk about what I would describe as, I'd say it's, I think it's one of the largest, one of the largest sculptures in the world. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna prelude you with that. Tell me about your biggest installation to date, and, yeah. and just a few so, of the facts and statistics around it. Yeah. Well, as it turns out, the the, the Kelpies, as they're known, uh, are six years old. Just uh, last week, in fact, it was their birthday uh, when they were actually installed. Yeah. And um, so, so it's a project. Uh, the Kelpies in Scotland are uh, mythical seahorses, unlike your Kelpies, which are dogs. <laughs> Our Kelpies are uh, mythical seahorses, so must be going back now about 15 years, uh, 16 years when I was first approached uh, to come up with a large-scale sculpture installation on the canal in central Scotland. And uh, I came up with a design for two horses' heads based on uh, working horses, Clydesdales, which came from that, you know, that part of the world. And over the course of eight and a half years, we designed and built, made the maquettes and did all the drawings and worked with a fantastic team of engineers and fabricators and lighting designers and landscape architects and literally over a hundred people were involved. And uh, we installed them in a new park there in, in central Scotland, a little town called Falkirk, which only has 40,000 people. It's a tiny little place. And now uh, they're the biggest artworks in Scotland and among the biggest in Britain, and the biggest equine pieces in the world. Um, they weigh 300 tons each. They've become a huge success. There were five million visitors. Um, the Queen came along for the inauguration. Princess Anne came along to another event. We've had all sorts of publicity. They've won multiple awards. And uh, the best thing of all, they got me four honorary doctorates, would you believe? So I've done all right to, out of them too. So. Unbelievable, Andy. And, yeah, and are they yeah. a functional? Aren't they functional? Were they separated? They were designed, originally, uh, they were originally supposed to be counterweights for quite a, a tricky uh, engineering. Yeah. Uh, um, they were going to be part of a lock operating system where they would uh, operate the lock of a canal mm. but it turned out that they they changed the canal engineering to the degree where the the movement uh, function of them was no longer necessary and luckily for me by that time the public had gotten so into the idea of these huge sculptures just as artworks they became simply sculptures rather than part of a mechanical uh, functioning system and I have to say, it made things much easier in terms of the engineering and, and all the hydraulics and other stuff that was, uh, that was involved. And it played into my hands as a sculptor because they came purely about narrative, about storytelling, as we mentioned earlier on, about modern mythology. And they've become a huge success, you know, and uh, they've got a day goes by, you check them out on Instagram every day, there's dozens of images that become a huge hit. Uh, they're on the news, they're the backdrop to the news, you know, there are all sorts of things, they're all over Scotland. So just so people can have a look, it's the Kelp, so Andy Scott, you're on, um, you are Andy Scott yeah. Sculptor on Instagram, yeah. but the Kelpies yeah. probably has its own hashtag, does it? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's dozens and dozens of photographs on you, you, you Check it out. Be able to check it out. Yeah, yeah they, you have to check it out. Really well. Yeah, because you took us up to that, um, the Falcon, Falcon, how do I say it? 
the what, yeah, you took us up there to have a look at it before you made them. You were showing us how that all how that all works. Well, that's um, that would have to be one of your most memorable, kind of almost like you know, at our age, we're over that we've got a five in our age where we just look back and actually feel like thirty yeah. something years of work has culminated yeah. in this. Did it feel like that for you? Yeah, you know, working on something that scale takes a lot out of you. I'll be honest, it yeah. was a very, very demanding, very demanding project. You know, you've been there, that kind of thing. You know, not on that level, level, I haven't, mate. Not that level. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know, one of the good things about moving over here to the states is it's given me a bit of time and space and distance, both physically and mentally, from them. And I now look at them in a different way, and now I see them as a an achievement rather than as a. Uh, how would I describe it? For a while, they were a bit of a millstone around my neck, and, and I felt like they'd kind of were weighing me down a little bit, you mm, know. Mm. And um, I, I think moving away from them has given me distance to appreciate the effort that we mm. all put in. I mean, I was lucky. I sometimes liken it to being the centre forward of a soccer team that scores the winning goal. You know? <laughs> I got all the glory, and to be fair, I did design them. But there was a cat for hundreds of people involved. So You've always been, um, you have always been such a team player, Andy Scott. So what? Tell me a little bit about um, just to wind up here. What's uh, going on for you in Philadelphia? What does it look like over in America now? And how did you end up there? Well, uh, we decided uh, after a, well, a few years ago. Now we decided it was time to broaden our horizons. Um, I'd, I'd had a particularly great run of success in Scotland, and and it really, I began to feel as though I was maybe. It was a danger of complacency, you know, just sort of sipping into an easy life and working from one project to another. And we decided we would apply for green cards to come over to the States, which we got. And um, we looked at different cities. As I said before, we, uh, when we were chatting before, we looked very closely at Chicago. We looked at the West Coast, New York as well. And by chance, we came down to Philadelphia and just really loved it. It's a, it's a great town. It was a great vibe. Uh, we met some fantastic friends. and. And we decided to, to give it a go here in Philly. And uh, when we set up in Philadelphia, we brought some projects over from Scotland, which I completed here and then shipped back. And that gave us a nice transition period and allowed us to get a feel for the city. And uh, we worked with some fantastic fabrication uh, colleagues here uh, in the studios. And uh, they're called FKB. They're a fantastic company who help us out a lot. And, and, and uh, so far it's gone really well, you know, now we're, we're, we've got a real head of steam, the studio's jam-packed, I've got projects going to Colorado and wow. up to New England and a job, interestingly another job going back to Scotland again, so they still love me in Scotland. <laughs> of course, they won't, they won't ever give up that, my friend. That sounds like the future is bright, I love it, and you just, you never run out of steam. You've always uh, got a lot of creative well, pump you know, there. Yeah, Kayla, you know how it is, sometimes it can be really tough, you know, it's, it's great. You know, even this far down the line in my career, there are times when it gets a bit lean and you begin to have real moments of self-doubt. And mm. I heard you in one of your podcasts before talk about imposter syndrome to one of your other right. interviews. That's right, Age of the Amateur, yeah, yeah. And then it really struck a chord with me as yeah. I listened to it because sometimes you do, you sit back and you think, geez, what, what am I doing here? This is weird, you know? Yeah, So right now we're on a roll, we've got, we've got an inquiry in Vietnam, we've... We sent wow. these down to Mexico. There's stuff happening all over the place. But I love it. Having said all that, you know, you never, you can never sit back. You can never rest on your laurels. You, but know? Do you, you know, just don't know what's coming next. Do you know why we're going to be okay, my freelance creative friend? I tell you why. Because I have a theory. Well, it's not just mine. There's a lot of people talking about this out there. Um, that the freelancer, the life of a freelancer, which is us, the self-starter. We wake up like everybody in the world's waking up every Monday. Now, so the people that 
have the nine to five, right? Yes, it's enduring and it's hard, like my yeah. husband, for example. But they know what it. They know what their future looks like. We've we've never known that, you know. We have to. We're feast or famine. So I oh, feel yeah. as though the rest of the world's just caught up with <laughs> with that oh, yeah. now oh, that yeah. they're at home. And it's not such a bad thing because a you get to be really creative. B you become super resilient. And yeah. C freelance means freedom. Yes, it can do. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of pluses to it. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's interesting that you know a lot of people are now they're beginning to. I think for me it's always interesting when people say, "Oh, you're so lucky being able to do what you like whenever you want to." You know, and you're like, okay, I would never say that ever. <laughs> I would never say that to you ever because I know that this is you know this it's is the life. Hard, you know, <laughs> but it's the life that we chose, you know, and it, it is the um, it's the road less travelled, but it's it's a good one. So I didn't give you the heads up on this, my friend. Um, I'm about to go off and do some digital storytelling. That's my life. Um, and thank you for spending this time with me. It's night time in Philly. <laughs> and it's, I'm all sprightly day after the day after. Uh, yep. I always end my podcast, and you will know this because you listen to them, with who and where inspires you. So people and place. So who, it can be a person or a whole lot of people and a place. Andy Scott? Who inspires me? Uh, you know, and you're going to think I'm a hopeless romantic here, but I'm going to say my beautiful wife, Hanukkah, who you've met. And, uh, <laughs> of course. And I'm, not just, I'm not just saying this because I'm hoping she's making me a cup of tea downstairs. <laughs> yeah. No, Hanukkah, Hanukkah is my uh, my guiding light, and, and without her, I wouldn't be able to do half the things I do because she controls the business behind the scenes. And she's, as you said earlier, she's an architect. She understands what I'm trying to do. She gets it. She's super helpful and, and, and a real, you know, she's the light of my life and, and she really that. inspires me. She so absolutely inspires me. That's beautiful. You're not a hopeless romantic. You're just a real person who, who, who uh, appreciates what they have. And a place. And a, as far as place, yeah, that's a hard question. Now, now I'm not so sure. I would have said a couple of years ago, I would have said Glasgow, my home city. Um, but now that I've been away a little while, Mm, that's a challenge. I would probably just say that that cities inspire me. I think that's good, um, good answer. I I, I, I revel in, in artworks in public places, and most of them happen to be in cities. And every city I go to, I seek out the artworks that are in either the plazas or on the buildings. I'm particularly fond of cities in southern Europe, and Spain, Portugal, mm. Italy. Um, so I don't think I'd be so specific on that on that question, but I'm definitely inspired by cities. And, well, that uh, is a true people to place person. Look at that. If I didn't do another, if I, if I finished my podcast series now, I would be one happy person. I'm going to fly away, but I tell you what, we're going to check in with you over the weekend for the big fellas' fiftieth. Um, lots of love to Hanika and and Pupster. Um, always a pleasure. You and I could chat for hours. In fact, what we will do is this time next year we will make a deal that I'm coming to Philadelphia with the man. Definitely. Sounds good. Well, thanks very much for asking me to take part in your podcast. I really enjoyed listening to the other ones. I hope I made some sense there. I hope folks understood my accent. Uh, and, uh, you're getting better at it, buddy. It's not as um, it's not as Glaswegian. Well, Can you get Hanika also to send me over a beautiful photo of you? Uh, just a headshot, please. Sure, will do. Absolutely. All right. we'll Namaste. Do we'll do Namaste. All right. All the best. Speak to you soon. See All right. Ya. Give my love to everybody. Ciao, right. buddy. Bye-bye. Ciao.